Hello, my loves, and welcome to Yano Thank You, a sometimes serious, sometimes not podcast about amplifying your inner voice and taking responsibility for your own well-being. I'm your host, Catherine, and thank you so much for pressing play. In this episode, I'm going to talk about a favorite topic of mine, and that's communication. And I'm going to focus on a really specific type of communication, and that is the type of communication that happens in intimate relationships, be it uh, family, close friends, or a romantic relationship. I'm also going to focus on the tough conversations that happen in those unions. So communication in times of disagreement. The tips that I'm going to go over, they aren't meant to improve how you present as a communicator or improve how you speak. Instead, they are going to help you keep the conversation productive and they'll encourage the person that you're speaking with to open up if they're ready and willing to, that is. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time building up the episode because I do have a lot to cover, but as per usual, I'm going to give you a little roadmap of what I'm going to cover today. So to start, I'll go over my top four techniques for improving communication, and those are validate, preface, reflect, and resolve. I'll then briefly discuss a fifth bonus factor that I didn't really feel belonged in the list, but it is really important. And I feel like I would be, the list would be incomplete without it. And then at the end of this episode, I'm going to answer a listener question I got regarding my second episode on boundaries. And oh my God, it is such a good question that I feel like a lot of people struggle with. So definitely stay tuned for that. Okay. Without further ado, here are my top four tips for immediately improving communication in intimate relationships. So number one, validate. This is one of the most important starting points for any productive conversation in an intimate relationship. I also feel like it's a useful tool if you ever need to disarm someone. So if you're conversing with someone who's coming in at a 10 with guns blazing and you want to bring them down to a calmer, I can't guarantee that they will be calm, but they'll definitely be calmer. <laughs> so a calmer level, validating them and where they're at, it's going to be a huge help. So what is validation? Validation is a broad topic and it can actually come in many different forms, but the basic function is this. It communicates to the other person that you've one, heard what they've said, and two, that you accept what they've said as either true or at least plausible based on what you know about them, their history, and their position or perspective. Now, as I said, validation is a really broad topic. So to clarify it even more, I'm going to go through what validation is not. So some common misconceptions about it. So the first is validation, it's not lying to someone or falsely relinquishing your position. You actually have to care about what the other person is saying and the other person. So validation isn't about siding with the other person in some inauthentic way. 
Another thing validation is not is that it doesn't mean that you have to accept as true something that is actually false. So for example, if I were to come to you and say, hey, listener, you said you were going to do this thing for me uh, and you didn't. And now it's the third time this week that this has happened. I think you're doing this just intentionally to fuck with me and that you have no and never had an, an intention of, of following through. So in this case, validating my statement, it doesn't mean that you need to accept what I just said about you, right? It doesn't mean that you have to accept me basically calling you a liar. It's actually possible to validate what I've just said, but also assert its falsity. So that's there's an important distinction there that I think is important to, to point out. Also, validation is not coddling someone. And I want to make this point because in the world we live in today with trigger warnings and believing survivors of sexual assault, I know there are groups out there that think that we as a society are disproportionately emphasizing people's feelings and experiences. Now, I'm not going to comment on those positions in this episode or probably not any episode in the future, really. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying this because I know that those conversations are happening. But I feel like that way of thinking is equivalent, uh, or if not at the very least, applicable to how some people might view validating someone as babying them. And it's not. Validation is so important. Like, for example, in the context of raising a child, and I am childless, so I am by no means an expert on this subject, but this I know for sure. Validating a child is so important because that's how you teach them that they matter, that what they think and feel are valid, and that they are worthy of love and attention, and that they should never play small. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, like, this is obvious and basic, but we need to appreciate the fact that not everyone grows up with that kind of messaging. And if you don't get that kind of messaging growing up, it can have some pretty detrimental effects as an adult in terms of, you know, a person's sense of self-esteem, self-worth, all of that. So validating someone, it's not babying them. It's actually respecting that person's humanity. Okay, so I'm now going to pivot to what validation actually looks like and how you can start doing it to have better, more effective communications. Okay, so how does someone validate something you've said? So there are actually a bunch of different styles of validation, but for this episode, I'm just gonna focus on one, and that's the one that I use the most, and it's this. So you validate someone by validating the feelings that underlie what the other person just said to the extent that you can discern what they are. So think about it like this. Remember that example I gave you earlier where I accused you of being a liar because you hadn't been following through on, on your promises uh, you know, for the past week? Okay, so the next time someone says something like that to you, or anything really, think of what's coming out of their mouth as something that has layers. So you've got the top surface layer, which is literally the string of words that form their sentence. But in addition to that, there's always something that underlies and sometimes belies the face value of what they just said. So going back to my accusation of you being a liar, 
So step one, a validation would be to determine what feelings underlie that statement or that accusation. Now, what feelings do you think underlie that statement? Well, what did I say immediately before making that accusation? That should give you a hint. I recounted how it's happened multiple times in a single week that you've told me that you would do something you didn't follow through with it, right? So let's take a step back now. If that happened to you, how would you feel? You, you'd probably feel angry. Uh, you'd probably feel let down, maybe even humiliated in some circumstances. You might even feel disrespected or betrayed. So I'm giving a lot of examples for how someone might feel because everyone is different. And if we were actually having this conversation, you and I, and we were in an intimate relationship, hopefully you'd know enough about me and my history to know which one of those things I'm probably feeling. And get this, even if you don't know me that well, so I'm thinking of like a situation where, you know, you're trying to validate a stranger's state statement or the statement of someone that you don't really know that well. All you have to do is do what we just did, which is put yourself in their position, what they're telling you, and like what would be the objective choice for how you're feeling and just go with that. If you get it wrong, don't worry. The person that you're speaking with, they will correct you. Okay, congratulations. You have now uncovered the second layer to my accusation. In other words, you've uncovered the real reason for the not so nice thing that I've said to you, my feelings. But that's just step one, right? So now we actually have to validate that feeling because again, the goal of validation is to validate the feelings, that second layer. It's not to validate the words that I said, which were actually pretty hurtful and untrue in this instance. So here, you just want to acknowledge it. Seriously, that's it. You just want to acknowledge the feeling. Don't judge the other person for feeling that way. Don't tell them that they should be feeling a different feeling or they shouldn't be feeling it at all. Just acknowledge that they're experiencing that emotion in that moment. Seriously, it's as simple as that. So one possible response to my accusation could be this. Okay, Catherine, I get it. You're probably feeling really let down or disrespected given that this has happened multiple times this week, but it wasn't my intention to lie to you. There you go. And that's like a real world response. Um, but a textbook response would sound something like this. And I'm, I'm going to give you this example just for demonstrative purposes because I don't, I feel like people don't actually talk this way in real life, but so textbook response would be, I can tell you're feeling really let down by my behavior, but it wasn't my intention to lie to you, right? So there I'm validating, but I'm also asserting the truth, which is that I am not a liar. And that, you know, me not following through my promise, it wasn't intentional. Another textbook response could be, okay, Catherine, I sense that you're feeling disrespected, but it wasn't my intention to not follow through on plans this many times. Now, no one talks like that, right? But again, I say these just to show you that the key to validation is number one, Determine what feelings underlie what the person is saying. And number two, 
just validate the other person's feelings. Like acknowledge that they are feeling that thing. Now, one follow-up point to this. Remember when I said at the beginning that these tips can be useful for calming someone down or disarming them? I was talking about validation. So validation, it's been shown to help the person that you're talking to, to help them regulate their emotions. And that's because when we're feeling some type of way or, or, or a specific emotion that is commonly perceived of as negative or undesirable, we're often in a state of agitation or like in fight or flight mode, right? So if we're feeling sad, like we're, you know, we're anxious about that. We're fearful of that because it's like, well, why am I feeling this way? I should be happy. Or if we're feeling angry, it's like, no, this is, this is like, I don't like this. I just, I don't want to be angry anymore. Like I just want to expel these angry feelings. And this is because we are fed this narrative that our homeostasis or our natural state is supposed to be the highest levels of happiness. And anything less than that is not an emotion that we should want to harbor. But that is not true. The idea that underlies validating as, as an act is that all emotions are valid and all of them have a place. When you're feeling a quote unquote negative emotion and you have someone validate what's going on inside of you and basically say, hey, I see that you're going through this thing and it, and it doesn't matter. In fact, it's totally okay because I'm still going to be here for you. That is a huge sense of comfort. And I've even seen it with my own eyes. It, people just kind of relax when you validate their, their mental or emotional states. So that's it for validation. It's a huge topic. As you can tell, I've spent quite a bit of time on it, and that was just one of many types of validation. Um, so if you have any questions about it or if you'd like me to cover a specific type, definitely let me know so that I, I can make a targeted episode about it in the future if that's something that, that interests you. So the second point for effective communication in intimate relationships is preface. This is going to be a short point, and I also can't take credit for it because it actually came from my therapist. So a little backstory here. When I was in therapy, sometimes I would talk about, you know, how I had this pervasive feeling, and then I had this pervasive need to express this feeling or have a discussion about it with a particular person, right? But then I would go through all of these concerns that I had about doing that with my therapist. So I would go over, I would say like, yeah, like I know I need to have this conversation, but I have no idea how this other person is going to react. I'm worried about like where it's going to lead. And I've actually been delaying having this conversation uh, for weeks for these very reasons, blah, blah, blah. My therapist would look at me and she'd be like, why don't you just tell them all of this? And I never thought about that before, but that's actually, I feel like that's really good advice. So prefacing your state of mind for someone before launching into what you're about to talk about, especially if it's something delicate, that can actually be very useful because it's almost like you are a photographer um, that's adjusting the lighting for your perfect shot, 
right? It, like it sets the tone or the mood, the mental mood, and it can prime the listener to be, for example, maybe a little more patient than they would normally be, or maybe a little bit more forgiving, or maybe even a little more critical. Whatever it is that you think the listener needs to be in order to most appropriately and and most beneficially like receive the true meaning of what you're about to say. And prefacing can sometimes even be a literal request. So for example, if you're about to if you decided that you need to have this tough conversation with someone, but you've had a really long stressful day at work, prefacing the conversation could go something like this. Hey so and so, I've had a really shitty day at work today, um, but I need to talk to you about X. So please excuse me if I'm a little bit curt. It has nothing to do with you. Another example could be, okay, so like I haven't really fully processed this situation, but I want to talk about it and I know I'm prone to jumping to conclusions. So if I do that during this conversation, please just flag it for me. So to end this point, prefacing means giving your listener a preview of what's going on inside your mind, your heart, before launching into whatever it is you're about to say. The third point I'm going to make is reflect. So when I was in law school, I took this seminar on transformative mediation, which is a specific type of mediation that essentially places the power of conflict resolution in the hands of the parties, not the mediator. And how it works is you have this mediator who helps the parties to clarify their own positions to each other as they work towards a solution on their own. And I think this technique is actually really useful in everyday discussions as well. So in transformative mediation, the mediator's job is only to accurately reflect what each side has said, but in their own words. So unlike validation, which focuses on the feelings that underlie the statement. When you reflect what someone has said, it's just straight up mirroring. So what does that look like? Well, let's take that, let's go way back and take that example at the beginning of this episode where I called you a liar because you didn't follow through on a promise, right? So a reflection of that position would sound something like, okay, so Catherine, what I'm hearing you say is that you're feeling that so-and-so's repeated failure to follow through on their promise is intentional. Now you're probably thinking, how is that helpful? How is parroting what someone said to me going to improve communication? Well, I'm gonna take a guess that if you were to start using reflection in your everyday conversations today, your reflections won't be accurate or they won't capture everything the other person has said. Why? Because very few people are good listeners and even less so when tensions are running high. Now, that's a problem because understanding the other person's perspective or position is critical to working towards a solution. So, if and or when you get a reflection wrong, it's actually totally okay because the other person will be like, no, that's not what I said. What I said was this. 
Um, so reflection also invites clarification. And in my experience, when I was doing the seminar, I noticed that even regardless of whether you got the reflection right or wrong, reflecting, it actually prompts the listener to elaborate on what they've just said. So they would take your reflection and build off of it. And they tend to go deeper into the subjects and just bring in more data for you to work with. And all of this is really useful for conflict resolution. So yes, reflection is a great tool, super useful for getting clarity on each other's point of view, which I think is essential to reaching a solution. Okay, so let's keep moving to my final point, which is resolve. So this last point, it's a bit of a misnomer because I'm not here saying that one of the ways to improve communication in a disagreement is to resolve the disagreement. <laughs> that would be obvious, but um, I'm not going to lie. I had this one word pattern going with all of my points and uh, I wanted to keep that consistent. So I tried to find a single word that encompassed everything on this fourth point and resolve is what I landed on. But what I mean by resolve uh, is to find common ground, essentially. So one of the reasons I think a lot of people get frustrated with tough conversations is because more often than not, the people involved in those tough conversations, they're actually not trying to resolve the conflict. Like, whether they're conscious of it or not, they actually have zero interest in making amends or resolving the conflict, I've found. Instead, a lot of people are either trying to, one, force the other person to accept their point of view, two, they're trying to play devil's advocate consistently, which I think is an indirect way of forcing someone to accept your point of view, or they're not even listening at all to what the other person is saying, and they're just formulating their rebuttal in their head. I don't think this point needs a lot of explanation, um, but the takeaway is this. When you're in a disagreement, right, make your point as best you can. Then hear the other person out, truly, okay? Like listen to understand, not to respond. But if you find yourself making the same point two or three times and it's clear that you're not getting through to the other person, then unless you're the type of sick freak who enjoys drawn out arguments, I feel that you have no other option at that point than to change course. And in my opinion, you need to resolve, or in other words, you need to switch to find common ground. So a really easy way to exit that tit for tat or that back and forth drama is to hit the other person figuratively with words, obviously, hit the other person with something like, okay, clearly we have very different views on this that I don't think are going to be resolved today. What can we do to move on from this right now? Another example is this. Okay, clearly we don't disagree or we don't agree. Let's talk about what each of us needs in order to move on from this today. It's as simple as that. Sometimes what a person needs is something as simple as just an acknowledgement of a wrongdoing and an apology. I kid you not. Other times, the person just needs a hug or like a promise that they'll make a change going forward and that both people hold each other accountable. A lot of times, 
the person, when you hit them with that kind of question, they're like, shit, I don't even know. I don't know. I think I just wanted to vent. (laughs) But seriously, why have a drawn out energy draining war when you can just cut straight to the point of, of what that person needs to feel better in that moment and then be done? Whatever the case may be, save yourself some time and energy and just cut to the chase. Also, very briefly, aside from asking what the other person may need, sometimes, and this is very dependent on the kind of discussion that you're having or the topic, finding common ground can look like keeping track of the issues that you both agree on, right? So highlighting the points that you agree on and the points that you diverge on. So if you're having this conversation with someone, uh, you can keep track by saying, okay, so we agree on points A, B, and C, but D, we disagree on, we diverge on. So let's focus on that one part. So by keeping track of the points that you diverge on, I find that it helps, it helps to focus the discussion. And this is helpful because when you don't set limits to the discussion, to what the real issue is about, there are some people out there who um, tend to get sidetracked. Um, like, for example, the, they could start bringing in like irrelevant stuff or, or, you know, stuff that happened like years ago. And it's like, what? Like that has nothing to do, like really has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, so it helps people stay on track. Okay, so that is it for my top four tips for improving communication in intimate relationships. Uh, And as I promised, I have a fifth bonus factor, which is this, table. (laughs) Yes, it is the word table. So I went back and forth about including this one because it's actually, it's not a communication skill in and of itself, but I think this list would be incomplete without it because it is so important. So what I mean by table is that it is a hundred percent okay to table a conversation and get back to it. There are a lot of reasons for this, um, but I'm going to focus on one that I found to be super impactful when I first read it. And it has to do with how our brains work. And uh, I actually researched this before recording this episode because it's not my field of expertise and I didn't want to misquote it for you. So one support for tabling a difficult conversation when tensions are running high is this thing called amygdala hijacking. And that term was coined by psychologist Daniel Goleman. So a little bit of background, the amygdala is the primitive part of our brains that's commonly thought to form the core of a neural system that processes fearful or threatening stimuli. Amygdala hijacking is a situation where your amygdala hijacks control of your response to stress. And it does that by disabling the frontal lobes, which control your ability to process and think about your emotions in order to determine a logical response and activates the fight or flight response. So the fight or flight response, we hear that a lot in popular culture, but it developed in early humans as a response to stress or threat of harm. So that would be like a charging wildebeest or a lion or like a falling rock or something. But in today's world, the fight or flight response is often triggered by psychological threats or stressors as opposed to physical ones. 
So here I'm talking about fear, anger, anxiety, shame, powerlessness. So when you're in fight or flight mode, with all those stress hormones running through your body, amygdala hijacking describes this this situation where your amygdala, it actually overrides the functioning of your frontal lobes. And this is often why after that period of heightened emotion has passed, we sometimes feel guilty about how we acted, not necessarily because we did something wrong, but it's because now when we've reached that more relaxed state and our frontal lobes can can work normally, we can then see the issue from the other person's perspective, right? We're no longer working from uh, what psychologist Bernard Golden calls child logic, which is a mindset of having unrealistic expectations of the world and of people and an inability to consider other people's perspectives. It's a very ego-centered state. So all this to say is that there is scientific support for the practice of taking a break from a tense conversation and getting back to it. Based on the research that I did, ideally, like that would mean like a good night's sleep. So if you can, if you can hack it, like wait 24 hours, but at a minimum, 20 minutes has been found to like calm people down. Okay. This episode ended up being a little bit longer than I wanted it to be, but that's okay. It was packed with a lot of good information that I love to talk about. So, you know, it's it's all good. Um, as I promised, I'm going to end this episode by answering a listener question that I got uh, in response to episode two, which was on boundaries. And the question goes as follows. So if you have to set boundaries, what does it say about that particular relationship? I ask because for me, I kind of figure if I feel I need to set boundaries or attempt, then maybe that relationship isn't healthy and not worth my time. This is such a good question. I love it. Okay, so I feel like we all struggle with this in our relationships, be it family, friend, friendships, uh, romantic relationships, where the other person does something that displeases us. And depending on what it is, we're asking ourselves, is this it? Is this, is this a red flag? Or is this a deal breaker? And, and those are all valid questions. And I think I think we should be asking ourselves those questions. We should be evaluating our relationships and friendships all the time. I now I'm not saying that we should be, you know, plotting our our departures from these relationships all the time, but I think frequent check-ins with ourselves as to whether particular relationships are serving us and helping us to be our best selves, I think that is absolutely necessary. So I will start with that. Now, this question was really interesting to me because it highlighted for me just how narrowly I answered or I explored the topic of boundaries in episode two. So if you haven't listened to episode two, I'll give you a little a little breakdown. So I talked about a specific type of boundaries that I think need to be set. And those are the type of boundaries that need to be set if 
a person that you're in a relationship with, be it family, friend, or romantic, if they're doing something that hurts you, be it physical or emotional, and the discord that that exists between you, it has a negative effect on you. So that right there, that's a really specific type of situation. And if you're experiencing that, or if you think you're experiencing that in one of your current relationships, then in my opinion, now depend, like if it's physical harm, obviously like don't tolerate that. But if it's if it's emotional harm, depending on the degree or the severity, I personally would give people grace if it's a first time offense, so to speak, you know, because no one is perfect all the time. And especially in like friendships and romantic relationships, you're getting to know someone who grew up like who is their own person with their own quirks. And by agreeing to be that person's friend or that person's partner, you agree to to experience those quirks. Now, you agree to experience them, but if they're not good for you, I'm not saying to tolerate them. But definitely give people grace if it's if it's the first time that it's happened. Definitely tell them uh, how it affected you, and hopefully they change. Now, if the offense happens again and again and you're having to set the same boundary again and again, then yeah, I agree with you. I think that relationship is not healthy and it's not worth your time. And I think you should distance yourself from that person. Because think about it. If someone is continuously disregarding, overstepping your boundaries, what does that say? It's, I mean, it says a lot of things. Most of all, it says that that person doesn't respect you. When you're voicing your needs, they're not listening to you. So why would you put up with that again and again? I, there's de there are definitely some people who do that. I don't think you should be one of those people. Now, I have a second point, which is there are a lot of different boundaries out there, a lot of different types, right? So the type of boundary that I talked about in episode two, that's a specific type. But there are also boundaries that you can set for, you know, kind of run-of-the-mill everyday things, right? So you can set a communication boundary, just as an example. Like a communication boundary would be like, you know, after 9 p.m., I am putting my phone on do not disturb and I'm just not going to answer any text messages. I won't be, you can't reach me after this certain time. Or if you're having a stressful day, right? And you're just like, I need an hour. I need an hour right now. Please just give me space. You could set boundaries in groups of friends. So if you're like me and you're not really a fan of gossiping, if you're in a group of friends and the conversation starts to go down a road where you're talking negatively about someone who isn't there, you could set a boundary in your group and say, hey guys, I'm not really about this type of conversation. Can we talk about something else? So for those type of actions or behaviors and the kinds of boundaries that you set in those situations, I don't think that on a first offense that you should end the relationship or end the friendship for something like that. Um, but similar to the other type of boundary, even for, for those types of, you know, seemingly simple action or behaviors, 
if they're consistently ignoring you or disrespecting you by overstepping your boundary and, and continuing the behavior that you politely ask them not to do, then I would con- I would suggest, you know, considering whether that friendship is healthy. So that is my answer to that question. Thank you so much, listener, for sending that in. And if you have any questions about this episode on communication in intimate relationships, send it to Yano Thank You Podcast on Instagram. I will see you in the next episode. Stay well and take care of yourself.